more than likely you've uttered the phrase, yeah, I'll just Dropbox that to you. That turn of phrase has become so popular thanks to the capabilities Dropbox has offered to the masses. People around the world can share and store documents, pictures, and information simply by dragging a file into a folder. But how does that file get stored? And how do those precious items live in a space that seems almost endless? Andrew Fong is the Vice President of Infrastructure at Dropbox, and on this episode of IT Visionaries, he dives into the nitty-gritty of how he helps keep those mementos accessible everywhere. Plus, he describes how a small task force formed in 2013 shaped the future of Dropbox forever. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries, and today we are joined by special guest, Andrew, what's going on? Nice to meet you. I'm super excited to be on on this episode. Awesome. It's great to have you. So we're going to be talking about what you're doing at Dropbox. We're going to get real into the weeds of some of the cool stuff that uh, that you all have done, um, particularly some of the things in, in your background that are fascinating. Let's get into it. How did you get started in technology in the first place? I have always been interested in technology. I love Legos. I'm sure a lot of your, a lot of the people that come on the podcast probably say something to that effect as well. Um, I remember pretty distinctly my first foray into deep technical. I got a actually the first foray was probably Logo Writer on sort of the old Max in middle school making a little turtle run around the screen. That was a lot of fun. And then I remember the first like super deep technical experience I had was I was on like an early version of the internet perusing and I find this thing called Linux. Of course, I have a Mac though at the time. And so I download like the Mac version of Linux called MK Linux. And it's a complete disaster to try to use as like a 13 year old kid trying to figure this out. So that's sort of my first foray into technology. Um, And I sort of stuck with the Linux thing and kept doing that and sort of turned it into the first couple jobs and then eventually at AOL and YouTube and now Dropbox. Yeah, so flash forward to today, what does it mean to be the infrastructure guy, the vice president of infrastructure? Let's see. So at Dropbox, this means that primary responsibilities are everything from our supply chain capacity planning, network data centers, Um, deployment systems, internal cluster management, and the storage layers that run on top of that. Um, That's the technology remit. Um, With with that comes a lot of uh, the responsibility of reliability, durability, um, as well as a lot of the budgeting, um, a lot of the budgeting aspects uh, from, from the organization. That's what I, that's, that's the remit. What, what, what do I do on a daily basis? I think of it as a big portion of my job, actually the primary portion, is going to be really focused around talent and culture and values. So I try to spend a lot of my time, probably a disproportionate amount of my time there, um, as well as sort of on the direction setting aspect of technology within the organization. Yeah. So do you work both like on internal technology, like internal employee 
uh, technology and like externally on the product or how does that work? So we have two different organizations um, that do infrastructure-ish things at Dropbox. One is our internal ITS team who provides, think of them as the systems that run the corporate infrastructure at Dropbox. So your laptops, the um, you know the financial processing systems, um, the sales forces, those integrations uh, that go back to sort of the internal users at Dropbox, the Dropbox employees. My remit is on the production side. So everything, effectively what we run in infrastructure is the Dropbox cloud. So when a piece of data is stored from your computer into the Dropbox system, it ends up in a system of record that the infrastructure team is ultimately responsible for. Um, so that, that's the division of labor um, when it comes down to the infrastructural components inside of Dropbox. Awesome. And so what does, uh, what does your team work on from a day-to-day -day basis? Day-to-day, -day, these days, we're spending a lot of time on COVID-related activities. Um, I am super blessed to have a supply chain team that was on top of a lot of what's happened in the world in terms of COVID in late January, early February. I remember our head of supply chain came to me, sends, sends me a Slack at like 10 o'clock at night. He says, I don't think 2020 is going to be a normal, normal year. Um, it's a direct quote from him. Um, and I don't know if I could have come up with a better quote for those that have been following all the news. I think 2020 has not been a normal year. And what he was saying was, Look, we do a lot of, um, we, we actually use what are called ODM uh, computers. So we buy them and source them out of Asia. Uh, they're effectively specced for Dropbox. And so we manage the supply chain from everything from the motherboard assembly to chassis assembly to drive assembly. We manage that supply chain and the commodities behind that. At this point, everyone's familiar with COVID. The China at that point was coming off of Lunar New Year. Um, employees weren't coming back to the factories at the rate that they normally come back at. Cities were getting locked down. And what we're seeing is we're seeing a, you know, a backlog of, uh, of capacity that was not shipping out. And the reason being is it wasn't just, it just simply wasn't getting manufactured and moved to Taiwan and then eventually moved to the United States. That started in February for us and has led to a, that's been the day to day for us for a while now has been around just simply managing that and all of the other things that have come along with it. Um, you know, you first you looked at Asia and you had to solve that problem. And so there was a team working effectively 24 hours a day trying to figure out, okay, how do we source everything down to sheet metal to make sure that we're going to get deliveries and capacity will come to our data centers. Um, and then as it goes out, as, as the virus spreads around the world, you know, the Bay Area starts to lock down. So some of our last mile integrations happen in the Bay Area. What's the impact on that? So we had to work with our suppliers here to make sure that we still had people that were able to, you know, go to factories in Fremont to assemble machines. Then we have to figure out how do we get them shipped, right? Um, is, uh, are there going to be rules around where things are moving around the country? And everything down to, you know, we have manufacturing in, in Mexico as well. How does that play out as well? Um, as, you know, they were talking about, okay, maybe there are border restrictions there in terms, of, in terms of international travel. So all of these things, so there's been a big focus on COVID. That's been a big focus for 2020 for us. Um, but it can't be the only focus. And we also spend a lot of time on our three-year three horizon of how do we think about storage technology evolving? Um, how do we think about a lot of the different uh, efficiencies that we want to put in the system? So for example, we have a very large fleet of MySQL servers um, in the thousands, and they all have SSDs in them, so um, solid-state devices, disproportionately more expensive than spinning media. How do you keep the cost profiles of those down as your product is growing? 
Um, and so that leads us to thinking about new technologies and new abstractions that allow us to scale the database technology um, in a slightly decoupled way from the rest of the stack. And so we've been investing sort of on the multi-year horizon on technology like that. So those are sort of two examples of what, what sort of my day-to-day -day looks like right now. Um, sort of managing everything from a three to five year portfolio down to how do we make sure that the capacity that's going to need to come into the data center shows up at the data center um, in the next you know, month or so. You know, we talk a lot about reliability, durability, performance um, on this show. I'm curious, like what steps did you take initially to make sure that everything was reliable, durable, and, and performing correctly for Dropbox? So my background actually is in site reliability. I was a site reliability engineer at AOL. I was a site reliability engineer on YouTube for a long time. So my background is, is around reliability. And when I joined Dropbox, that was my, I think I was the third site reliability engineer that joined. And so I spent a lot of time, and I've been spending a lot of time in that space for my entire career at Dropbox. So what do we do to actually make sure all of this is reliable and durable and performant? I think of reliability as a core feature that we have to have. And when we go into any type of planning, reliability has to be a core, as durability as well, a core aspect of what we're paying attention to. Whether it's in metrics reviews, whether it's in a system design or engineering review, it has to be the number one thing that we are worrying about as an organization. Because from my perspective, and I've seen this, um, if you slip one month in reliability and you shoot for your three nines or four nines or five nines, however many you want, the minute you regress a little bit, the time it takes to recover from that regression can be measured probably three to five times more time to recover to get back to where you were than sort of the initial like eye off the ball. So you slip a week, you're probably looking at five to six week recovery. You slip you know, a month, you're probably looking at six months to get back to where you were from an operational posture. Um, so we think about it as something that must be ingrained in us every day. Um, it's you know, our number one company value is be worthy of trust in infrastructure. Our, one of our values is reliable. You know, our other two are efficient and inclusive, but reliability is something that's just core to how we actually operate as a business. I think a lot of reliability is around processes, but there's also technical. Like when we do our design reviews, it's a, it, and I mentioned this before, it's a core of what we're looking at. We're literally poking holes and trying to figure out exactly how the system will fail. And I know you want to talk about this a little later, but you know, one of our systems, Magic Pocket, which was our storage system that we built, one of the things we did is we applied a process called FEMA, where we looked at um, failure mode analysis of the entire system and spent hours, if not days, weeks, testing a core set of failures and documenting them and then validating that documentation against watching it a second time. So these were these are sort of the types of approaches we've used to validate systems from failing um, and just making sure that we actually have the type of rigor we need to make sure that you know we can provide the reliability and durability and performance guarantees that you have to when you build when you deal with uh, systems of record. Well, yeah, let's get into the Magic Pocket stuff now. So tell us a little bit about Magic Pocket and uh, and what what was going on at the time. So for those that don't know, Magic Pocket is Dropbox's internal codename for our internal storage system. Six, seven years ago, we started, maybe even actually well before that, we had started thinking about building our own storage system because we were primarily hosted on S3 as, a, as our block storage system. So these are, if you think of files, we store metadata, which is the name of the file, the access time of the files, the who owns the files, all of that 
is in one database. And then we have blocks. And blocks are just the blob data that's inside of a file. And we, we're storing the blob data inside of S3. And we started to think like, okay, with a business, like, do we, want, do we want all of that data there? Are there positives for us to maintain this? Can we build a general purpose storage system with a different cost profile? Can we build a general purpose storage system that gives us the ability and flexibility to do other things with the data that we wouldn't necessarily be able to do on S3? And we believe the answer was yes. And at the time, we had probably 600 petabytes of data inside of S3, 600 to 700 petabytes of data in S3. So we had to transfer that data out of S3, move that all into Dropbox data centers, and do that on a pretty tight timeline, as well as build the, the, the storage system, which didn't exist. That's the Magic Pocket project in a nutshell, something we tackled um, probably roughly six, six and a half years ago now at this point. You know, one of the things we hear a lot about cloud transformation going the other way. So, you know, <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little unique to have it, uh, you know, pull back off AWS. I think that the primary thing to understand about Dropbox and S3, um, the storage systems, Magic Pocket and S3, is that they solve fundamentally different problems. Magic Pocket is a block storage system that's effectively idempotent right once. S3 is not an idempotent storage system from its interface and allows you to change, update, move, and do a lot of different, act a lot of different actions to the blocks that are stored there. Now, when you think about that and you combine that with the access patterns, because when you look at Dropbox's access patterns, you primarily have data that is warm but not hot, meaning that you, we know that when you put a file into your Dropbox, you'll use it on some time horizon, and we have multiple versions of that file as well, and so we know those versions are never going to be accessed unless you roll back to it. With those characteristics, we can actually build a storage system that's more efficient than S3 for our use case, and I want to be very specific about this, it's for our use case. You could not put the S3 API on top of Dropbox and expect it to work and behave the way S3 behaves. We use S3 in other, in, for other types of storage because Magic Pocket is actually built for the bulk of the data we have, the 600 now multiple exabytes of data, because we knew that the economies of scale that we were going to have, that this was actually probably something on a financial side would be advantageous, as well as from a technology perspective, keeping that data close to us and to our compute and our databases would allow us to do other things with it. Um, because we weren't going to have to pay network transfer fees. We weren't going to have to deal um, sort of with like the way that um, Amazon was dealing with consistency. It gives us some different, uh, different levers to pull. And we thought that was like a, a very unique opportunity for us from a technology perspective to actually create a little bit more leverage for the product. As you're talking to other infrastructure leaders, is this something that, like, as you're telling them this story, is this something that they're like jealous that you were able to have the resources to do it, or they are they are they like, oh, why'd you why'd you do that in the first place? Like, what's the feedback you normally get? It's varied. I can tell you that managing a system like this is you need to go into this with your eyes wide open. I've definitely had conversations with other. Um, infrastructure leaders and other tech companies that have, have talked about doing things like this. Now, if you want to build a system like this, especially at the scale that this operates at, because if you don't have the scale, the economies, the, the unit economics don't kick in. And so what do I mean by unit economics? The cost per gigabyte, you don't actually get that value from the vendors you're going to work with until you start buying in volume. 
So you need to have a volume that actually makes sense before you even go down this journey. But then when you do that, you also have to be aware that you have to manage a network engineering team. You have to deal with supply chain. We talked about COVID earlier. So you have to deal with those type of events where if you're on S3 or you're on a public cloud and you have a medium-sized workload or a small workload, potentially even some of the larger ones, you don't have to deal with that. And those competencies aren't competencies you actually have to have through your organization. And I'm super lucky to have an amazing team that's able to handle a lot of these, a lot of these issues that come up. But if you don't have a supply chain team that's capable of going down and sourcing, sourcing sheet metal in the middle of a global pandemic, you may not want to think about this as a route you want to go. Um, it just adds a level of complexity to your business that may not be advantageous. Um, and for us, storage is core to our business. So the value prop actually makes a lot of sense. But if you're not a, you know, a storage company um, or a company that does a lot of storage, and it's core to the business, this might not be a thing you want to invest your resources on. We definitely don't invest resources in other aspects of our infrastructure where we believe there's better things that we can just buy off the shelf. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that you nailed it, that if it's core to your business, it's something that you really have to take a look at. And if it's not, then you know it's it's a different conversation. So what are some of the things that you just mentioned? What are the types of things that you, you don't want to build that you're just going to look at buying off shelf? Um, ML and AI is one. We utilize a lot of the public cloud providers, ML and AI capabilities. Sure. Uh, that's a area which requires a tremendous capital investment as, and as well as operational investment to handle right now. If you look at sort of the public cloud providers, if you have, I mean, if you look at Google, there's probably thousands of engineers working at ML and AI, same at Amazon. Um, that's an investment that we'll never be able to make at the same level of those companies. And the research aspect of that really drives a lot of what, what's happening in that space. So we try to use the public clouds for, for, for that type of technology. Additionally, um, our analytics and data processing is very similar. It's a capability the business needs, but it's not a core capability that differentiates Dropbox. So um, one of the other teams I, I lead is uh, our data insights platform teams. And that's primarily built on the Amazon stacks. Most of that technology is utilizing just sort of their normal, the normal processing capabilities they have built in a very familiar architecture for those that you know, utilize, uh, utilize public cloud for analytics. We utilize a little bit of Snowflake. All of these things, you know, those, are, those are not core capabilities to the business, um, but they're things that we need to run the business. So we tend to look at those as can we buy that. Any other things on uh, on Magic Pocket that uh, that were particularly uh, insightful or things that you didn't see coming? I can talk a little bit about how we did production validation for Magic Pocket. Sure. I think that one of the biggest challenges with launching a system like Magic Pocket is that we were moving 600 petabytes, 700 petabytes of data. And this is manufactured growth versus organic growth. This data existed in a place in the world already, Amazon, and we were moving it. So there was, and if you're storing the data in both places at the same time, you're paying double for that. So you want to converge these onto a single system as fast as possible. So you can deal with your, your financial models, et cetera, et cetera, right? You do that and that gives you a time horizon in which financially you must be able to do this in. At the same time, manufactured growth means you don't get to live and breathe the system and understand the system in the way that you would normally get to if you started from zero, right? And your company grows and your data set size grows and you iterate on that and you learn about it. So the learnings that we had to have 
happened, had to happen in a super short cycle. And so we put in pretty stringent production validations at a level that I wouldn't say you would use unless you were going to do something at scale immediately. And so we touched on the FEMA process. That was one where we put people in rooms and we asked them to do tabletop exercises to think of every failure mode they could have. And we had program managers write down every single um, idea people came up with. Then we grouped and bucketed and filtered those down into what were the, you know, the, the major risk areas for durability? What were the major risk areas for availability? We did this across supply chain, across network, across hardware engineering, across this, this software stack. So one aspect. Then we also had kept a second team in reserve uh, called a red team or a blue team that would actually go do code audits of the team that had written the initial code base to make sure that we could find things like race conditions, to make sure that we could find things that were just like logic errors that no one had seen because they're in the code base and living and breathing this code base all day long. We took that angle on it as well. And then we also put some launch timers up in terms of how long had this, did the system have to run um, before it lo without losing data or how long did the system have to run before it had an outage, before we deem it ready to go. And we also built some very sophisticated staging environments. Um, that allowed us to mirror some traffic and allowed us to like to do a various set of uh, tests there as well with live traffic. And additionally, we had to put a lot of operational rigor in that you typically don't see on day one of launch. We ran through very detailed rollout playbooks, which we still use today in terms of how the system had to behave. Magic Pocket, from an architectural perspective, is located in three different regions, how those regions were going to be updated. It was not a, something we thought about you know, as we went. It was these were things that we said, okay, from first principles, how would we design this in such a way that we are not going to lose data or cause an outage um, from day one, and we don't have the opportunity to learn because this is 600 to you know, 700 petabytes of live user data that has been in production for many, many years that we need to do without the users ever realizing that there was a change. So there, there's a tremendous amount of production validation that went into this, probably, roughly four to six months of just validation. Um, I think the timers were something like 190 to 180 days of running the system was sort of the runway we got before we actually flipped the bit and said, this is live. Final piece um, on the magic pocket stuff. So what would be like in your after action report here, uh, what would be the, uh, the one thing that you would do differently or if, if you could do it all over again? What ended up happening culturally is that we had created a team that was incredibly talented, incredibly deep, and had a team of just the best engineers we could possibly put together. And they were just, it was a machine that was just running. The challenge with that is that post-launch, how do you keep that machinery running? Because you have this massive system going where the team has to change and turn over because the, these people have been working on it for many years now, two plus years, for crazy amounts of hours. And so you have to reload and rebuild the team. That was the one aspect um, that I don't, that we thought about, but we're not intentional enough about. And you don't see the issues come out on day one because you know, the system is up and running and everybody's paying attention to it. But you know, 180 days post-launch or 365 days post-launch or 18 months post-launch, you start to see the team members start to drift into new areas and new things that they're finding exciting outside of the Magic Pocket systems. And so then you have to reload the team. And I don't believe, and I would, if I did this again with the, with the leadership then, is we would have reloaded that team in a different way and been a lot more intentional about finding the next thing so that we could get people excited 
you know, immediately post-launch with a different set of people working on the next piece of it. Um, because we sort of had a lull after the launch where we didn't actually, where it was, it became harder to manage the system because we were losing knowledge as, as the system, uh, as the system matured and people rolled off on new projects. That's probably the one biggest thing I would have changed. Yeah, that's a great insight. I think, and in, in that speaks volumes to like any huge project, right? Is like mm-hmm. the people who who worked on it for a long, long time. Um, that after that, a, a lot of them want to go work on something new, and b, as soon as they walk out the door, all of that institutional knowledge and all the little things that they that they did and built and and uh, all the patches and everything that went into it all need to uh, don't you don't want them to leave and especially in a place like you know Silicon Valley where um, where you know people obviously jump from company to company a lot uh, you need to figure out a way to keep them uh, you know engaged and and hopefully like you know with you with you as much as you can. Yeah, I think the thing that I, I would say is the analogy I use with the teams now is. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have heard this analogy, but the settlers, town planners, police sort of analogy in terms of how you manage software. Um, we had people that were much more the go figure it out. So the settlers, let's go, let's go look at this landscape. Let's understand it. Let's build something. Let's get it out the door. And, um, and a little bit of the uh, town planners, but we never moved to the next phase, which was like, let's make sure we operate it and operate it well for an extended period of time. And so we didn't get that operator mindset into the team early enough um, because we really had these people that just wanted to go do the next great thing as opposed to people that found deep job satisfaction and making sure the thing was running. That's great insight. I love that. Um, And that's a good analogy. I don't hear that a lot, but it's similar to like in sales, you know, you have, um, you know, you have sellers, you have customer success, you have, you know, the whatever spears nets and Mm -hmm. whatever, um, same sort of thing. So, Taking a step back and just looking at Dropbox holistically, um, you know, you've been there for a long time now, um, and I'm sure a million things have changed uh, in in the eight plus years that you've been there. Um, but is there anything? And and now you know Dropbox, you have hundreds of millions of users. Um, you know, more or less a household name uh, in in the technology circles. And obviously, you have so many folks that use it, just like. Uh, you know, all over the world. Were there any uh, things in those early days that you really, you know, any stories or things that kind of you cherish and hold on to that you couldn't believe like looking back on it now? There are a lot. Uh, Magic Pocket, which we covered in depth, was definitely one. I think that if you're lucky enough to go through hyper growth of the company, you see so many things. Um, you get to have so many experiences that you just would not get um, in other environments. I had worked at Google and I had worked at uh, AOL. I was at YouTube. Um, so I had seen hyper growth through YouTube. Um, but there's always a safety net of Google. And so when I, when I went to, to Dropbox, it was you're working in this environment that's at like massive scale without the safety net. And you just you have a lot of technical experiences, but you also have a lot of these people experiences. And a lot of these, like you build these like very deep connections with people that you just wouldn't expect that you would find when you're working side by side for, you know, I'll say something that's like probably, you know, eight, nine in the morning to like midnight, 1am, you're eating there, you're eating at work, you're, you're just working side by side with them for so much of the day 
um, and so much of your life that they become, you become very close to them and you become very close to like, you know them, you know their families. Um, and so that's something that I will always cherish from that experience. I think that's one, um, just the people aspect. I think from an experience perspective, I, I have feel like I've done every job inside of a company in some ways at some point. Like you do so much recruiting early on that you collect resumes in the job fairs and then for my teams and then go make sure that we had a campus recruiting uh, pipeline stood up for some of the site reliability aspects. Um, I remember interviewing somebody for our head of um, physical security, which you know I'm in the technology side. I'm not really sure why I'm interviewing somebody for the head of physical security, but he did. Uh, interviewed somebody that was going to own sort of the camera sides of of uh, the office builds for just you know doing surveillance of you know the office cameras when you come in the lobbies, things like that. That was an interesting experience because I knew nothing about it and had to learn about it to be able to do an interview. You just see this like life cycle of a company and you just have these experiences that are just very, very telling. I, probably the one other one that I would say is that companies go through ebbs and flows of you know, the brand perception in the market and such. And so getting to see that also, because it plays into sort of the recruiting and the retention. You know, for me, there was like times where I was like, okay, this is a great opportunity and just being able to reframe things as, okay, yeah, some of the team is leaving. What can I do to learn from that? Because in any company that I ever work at, that's it's not in hyper growth, there will be turnover. And so how do you think about that? How do you learn lessons from that? And it's like, every one of these things is an opportunity to learn something new. So I really cherish sort of like that growth opportunity through that phase. It just lets you learn so much so quickly. I know you don't have a crystal ball here, but um, what do the next few years look like at Dropbox? Um, what does uh, infrastructure look like uh, as you go? It seems like, you know, uh, you've done a lot of work to get to this point. Um, but I'd imagine that there's a bunch more to be done. There's definitely a lot more to be done. I'll give a sort of reflection of the last 18 months and, you know, mirror that to like where we'd like to be going forward as well. There's been two big things on the technology side that are on the hardware areas that we've invested in. Um, SMR uh, drives, which Dropbox was the first um, cloud provider to have these at scale in the market uh, in production. We have over an exabyte on these. This is a drive technology that is looks to be the only viable option at above 20 terabytes um, from a spinning media perspective. And so we made a huge investment in that from a technology perspective. So if I think of that, and then we made a huge bet on AMD as well. Um, we were the first major cloud provider to put AMD in the data center at scale. Um, and so both of those have given us, a, a, from our perspective, a huge advantage for the next few years. And it gives us runway to continue making in technology bets like that, where we can find levers that can either unlock a new capability for the business or unlock a new capability around cost. Those are the types of things that I see us investing in. How can we build out a tech stack that allows us the flexibility to truly be you know, the, the hybrid cloud that we want to be, I think is another aspect that we'll continue to invest in over the next three to five years. Um, you know, we utilize, we utilize cloud providers for international data storage, for example. Are there other things and other capabilities that we need to do that like, expand our global reach from an infrastructure perspective? Um, we have a massive network, but are there other things that we can do? Can we bring data closer to the user in some way? Um, 
that we haven't thought about yet? Can we increase performance on that as the products evolve, as the products needs evolve? So a lot of it, I think, in infrastructure, you know, is a lot of it is driven from the product side as well, just in terms of, you know, how is product thinking about it? So I tend to try to stay very close to the product side of the house as well and sort of make sure I understand sort of the company narrative because a lot of that drives what we have to do in infrastructure. You mentioned leadership a little bit, um, you know, company values being critical, um, building a team being critical, you know, as a leader, how do you view, you know, the kind of head of technology role or, or whether, you know, whether you're in infrastructure, whether you're CIO or CTO or uh, security lead, you know, there's the, uh, I, I heard once that there's there's like the C, the I, and the O, right? Um, and to be the C, you have to be, you know, the chief. Um, and usually people are good at the at the I or the middle letter, but not as good at being the chief. Um, how have you looked at that from a leadership perspective and, and maintaining, uh, building the right team and keeping folks around you that, uh, you know, are part of the mission and feel um, feel included? My, so everything for me starts from belief. Um, I am a huge believer and it all stems from belief, purpose, and values. So on a continuous basis, I spend time with my leadership team on what do we believe? So infrastructure Dropbox believes that they are a force multiplier. Every single thing we do has to be about becoming a force multiplier for the organization. And then from a purpose perspective, I think of it as, you know, what we've worked out and we've talked through, talked through is our goal is to maximize product velocity sustainably. So everything we ship and everything we build has to be towards that purpose. And then our values are reliable, efficient, inclusive. And so you, you touched on like how to make sure that including that's actually a core value to us. So making sure we have the perspectives at the table, making sure that we take the time to listen to the various points of view, making sure we integrate that is like very key to how I think about things. Um, and as a leader of the of infrastructure, that's actually, I spent a, probably a disproportionate amount of my time making sure that the organization is aware and understands the belief, purpose, and values. Because I think it allows the micro decisions on the ground to be made without having to have me or the leadership team dive into, you know, the one foot view and help teams through things. But if you're doing it towards making things reliable or making things more efficient or being inclusive, right, you can't go wrong. And especially if you have your the belief and the purpose in your head at the same time. So I work through the organization in terms of a way of making sure everything is framed up that way, whether it's our OKRs or, you know, I run a podcast um, every week as well. Um, where we talk for 15 minutes with somebody in infrastructure and we pick projects and we pick topics that are very core to our values. So a project that ships that was done in a super inclusive way that increased reliability for the company, it's going to be on the podcast. And we're going to talk to that person. We're going to make sure people understand exactly what the person's mindset was and how they, how they went about it. So to me, that's, that's how I think about it. Um, I think it's about creating an environment where those, you know, the belief purpose and values can be true. And the team can, will do the rest. And like, you make sure you have the right people around you that, that value the, that, that are bought into those values and those beliefs and the purpose. Final question here before we get into our lightning round. Any, uh, any exciting trends that you see on the horizon? We touched on AMD. I think AMD is a very, very hot trend. Um, I, think you're in, I think that what they're doing on the CPU space is revolutionary. Um, I think that's going to be a huge trend inside of the industry in the next, you know, 18, 24, 36 months. Um, we touched on SMR. I think that also is a trend. I think every CSP in the world right now is trying to get that into production. 
those are the two big ones on the hardware side. On the software side, I think things are shaking out right now in sort of the container world and how people are thinking about build systems and that aspect of, of technology. I think there's a, you know, this repeatable aspect is still coming up over and over again. I don't think we've gone fully through that journey yet. I don't think there's been a full intersection of how the release build and sort of the production teams have all come together to say, this is how, how we want to operate it. I think people have done it at small scale where the organizations are smaller and they take on all three hats. I don't know if it's been that sort of pipeline problem has been solved at scale yet. Um, and that we have technology solutions that sort of solve those workflows end to end. Um, those are probably, when I say workflow, I think that's actually probably the trend more so is that verse versus point solutions, people think of the, the holistic workflow that you're working through. Okay, let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, you can go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more. We love Salesforce. They've been here since the very beginning of this show, and they're just the best. So check out the Salesforce Customer 360 platform. Go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more. Lightning round questions. Andrew, are you ready? Sure. Number one. What app on your phone is the most fun? Can't say Dropbox. Most fun is probably, I read a lot of Reddit in my spare time. It's probably where I spend the most time. That or YouTube. Have you picked up a habit during shelter in place? I have not picked up a new habit. I have doubled down on some habits. Actually, I would say I was not using my wife, my wife's Peloton that much. And now I'm a huge Peloton fan. So that's probably a habit I have picked up in the last, uh, last couple of weeks. Somewhere, Hillary, our producer's ears just perked up in the uh, in the distance. We always we we end up uh, we end up talking Peloton. She's a huge Pelotoner, Pelotonian. Pelotonian. I, don't, I don't know what. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite instructor? My favorite right now, probably Alex Toussaint is probably my favorite instructor. I split my time between powerlifting and 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 Peloton these days. If you weren't a VP of infrastructure or in technology at all, what would you be doing? I, you know, the confident answer is this is probably the, this is the most fun I've ever had doing something. So I don't know if I would do something different. My wife is a lawyer and I'm always fascinated by, by law. And so I spend a lot of time peppering her questions. So maybe something in the legal field. Do you have a hidden talent or passion? I don't. I, I'm pretty much like what you see is what you get. How about a book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently that you enjoyed? I have two podcasts that I'm a huge fan of. One is uh, the HBR podcast. I think I almost li I listen to that religiously. I also am a huge fan of ESPN's The Daily right now. I think the stories that they produce are pretty, they're just always creative and I just love listening to them. And I'm just like on a walk these days. What's your best advice for a first time VP of infrastructure? I'd say that you don't have to do everything. That's one thing that I've learned over time is that the giving up things and asking people to do things is part of the job and it helps people grow and it's better for everyone. It helps scale you, it helps scale them. So finding the ability and like just being okay with giving things up for others to do and being okay with it, not coming out the way you would do it, but with the outcome being just as successful. Well, that's it. That's all we got for today, Andrew. Anything, uh, any final thoughts, anything to plug? I don't have anything to plug. This is really fun. I think you guys ask a lot of great questions and I'm sorry I don't have a hidden talent or passion. <laughs> it's not one that I can think of. I'd like, probably ask my wife if I have one, but she's in the other room. It sounds like it's powerlifting. I, I, uh, yeah, no, I know. I do have 
I'm a huge fan of powerlifting. It's it's a weird passion, but yes. Um, but yeah, it's been awesome to have you on. Thanks for uh, for getting in depth on that stuff. Super fascinating. Um, and uh, yeah, we appreciate it. Talk soon. Thank you. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.